Hi everyone and welcome to the Genomics Lab podcast, the podcast about current research in the field of genomics. We are your hosts, Eleanor Watson and Olivia Grant, two PhD students in the genomics group at the University of Essex. Join us as we speak to researchers in the field about their current research and their journey into genomics. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 28 of the Genomics Lab. So I have some updates for you today. Um, Let's start with the first boring one, which is that we have a new podcast logo, which I'm very excited about. Nice little rebrand. So if you're listening to us on Apple, you would have seen it already. But if you haven't, go to our Twitter, which is at the Genomics Lab, um, where you can see our new logo if you're interested. Also, if you are a listener on Apple, this is a message for you. If you have two seconds, please consider giving us a review or a rating on Apple um, because it really helps us like on the podcast app. I'd really appreciate that. So yeah, that's exciting. It's probably not exciting for you lot, but I am excited about a new logo. Um, Just, yeah, I do like a little rebrand. But a big update that I should give is that for the foreseeable future, it's going to be just me hosting the show as Ellie's decided just to take a break um, from the podcast and just focus on her PhD. Um, We're sort of heading into our third year pretty soon. I think October will sort of be like heading into our third year. So it's getting pretty stressful. And yeah, she just decided that she just wanted to focus a little bit more on her PhD. So it's going to be just me hosting the show um, for a while. Um, But nevertheless, we will still have um, an amazing time. I have some really cool guests lined up for the next couple months. Um, So we have some really cool episodes on the way. So I am really excited for those. But on today's episode, I thought that we would actually revisit one of our old episodes. So this is one of the first episodes that we ever actually filmed. And it's with Dr. Patrick Martin, who actually used to, um, we actually used to be in the same labs. And when I was doing my undergraduate project, Patrick sort of like helped supervise me. So um, yeah, it was really like good to talk to him. We talk about the package that I actually used in my undergraduate dissertation. And the package is Chip Analyzer. It's used for uh, modeling and predicting transcription factor binding to DNA. So um, you've probably already guessed, but yeah, the episode is going to be about um, the binding of transcription factors to DNA. And yeah, it's a really exciting one. So yeah, without further ado, let's just get started with today's episode. Welcome to our next episode of the Genomics Lab. Uh, Today we are speaking to Patrick Martin, who is doing his postdoc at the University of Copenhagen. Uh, so hi Patrick, welcome to our podcast. Would you just like to introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us a little bit about your research. Yes, thank you. Um, well, as as you just said, I am a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen, and my current research is uh, slightly different from what I was doing before, where now I am looking at a field called spatial transcriptomics. And the idea behind spatial transcriptomics is that you have a look at single cells but you also know where these cells were located within a tissue and so you can kind of remap and rebuild the tissue architecture and analyze the heterogeneity of tissues and cells within um, different organs and so my current work is trying to develop new algorithms to analyze to process and to uh, expand upon this knowledge um, and make the most out of this spatial transcriptomic data that is just starting to come out. So it is a very, very new and very fast moving field 
Um, yeah. So very like high resolution spatial transcriptomics is probably less than a year old. Okay. Um, wow. So that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. Wow. No, that's really cool. So um, obviously for people who are listening, um, Patrick obviously used to go to um, Essex, which is where me and Ellie are. So Patrick sort of like, you're responsible, Patrick, for getting me into research. Um, <laughs> you are <laughs> fully you. accountable. <laughs> this is all your fault. Um, no, so I actually started my undergraduate project um, in uh, Radu's lab, who is Patrick's old supervisor and my now PhD supervisor. And um, we were sort of using Patrick's package that we're going to talk about today. Um, so I don't know if you want to explain a little bit maybe about your PhD research, um, the package and everything that we're going to be discussing today. Sure. Uh, so the idea was that the my PhD project was originally entitled Mechanistic Models of Gene Regulation. And the, the kind of core idea behind this PhD was to use a biophysical model to study how transcription factors bind to DNA. And so my supervisor at the time, uh, Radu Zabet, he developed a biophysical model that describes transcription factor binding. And he had done some preliminary testing and my PhD in the what I was doing mainly was developing a tool, uh, a proper package that can be used uh, by other people that is user friendly and then testing this model and trying to incorporate new aspects to improve and make it uh, more accurate when it comes to transcription factor binding, but also understanding the mechanisms by which transcription factors bind to DNA. And so that was kind of like the, the global idea of what my research during my PhD was. Okay. Right. Well, that's obviously very interesting. So how did you how did you actually get into that for your PhD? What did you do at your undergrad, um, your master's? How how did the PhD come about? Uh, so I think that for me, the, the PhD was oddly enough, and this is going to sound maybe a bit weird, but for me, the PhD was a childhood dream, okay. but originally Aww. not in biology. So when I was a kid, I was <laughs> I always loved science. And my goal when I was around about nine or 10 was to study astrophysics and have a PhD in astrophysics oh, wow. and then I realized that you know math is quite hard and you have to put a lot of work into it yeah, a little um, bit. <laughs> and so when I when I finished my high school degree um, I was faced with a choice of what I was going to do at university and I ended up picking uh, biology and so for my own undergraduate degree I did biochemistry and cellular biology then I did a master's degree in molecular genetics and during my master's, I realized that I did a lot of lab work and I was doing molecular genetics in the wet lab. I was uh, taking care of plants because it was in plant science. But what I realized is that for me, the experiment was a means to an end. And the end was analyzing data. That's what I actually enjoyed doing. I had to do everything else so I could do that little bit yeah. that I actually enjoyed. Um, and then it occurred to me that I could do that 100% of the time by doing a PhD in computational biology and bioinformatics. Uh, so it is around that time that I decided that I was going to shift completely. Mm -hmm. And I applied exclusively to bioinformatics, computational biology uh, PhDs, and had the opportunity and the privilege to, to take the time to, to shift uh, field, because it's not an easy, an easy thing. You go through a lot of rejections, uh, a lot of self-learning and learning teaching yourself how to program yeah. and then I finally got the um this this PhD position 
And that was a great opportunity to really learn how to code and really learn statistical analysis and bioinformatics. Uh, so it was kind of like a more of a shift and bringing in the more mathematical aspects and bringing it to, to biology. Yeah, definitely. Um, how much experience in um, coding and, um, you know, even based things just like using R, how much experience did you have before you sort of did your PhD? Because obviously your PhD uh, work was quite, well, very computationally intensive. So how, how much experience did you have beforehand? So during my undergrad, I had one class in programming, which was C programming, but it was four classes. So technically, I had a bit of exposure to programming, but I don't think that counts. Um, so my experience with R and programming was exclusively self-taught. Okay. Um, so during my master's, I did a bioinformatics project um, where I was supposed to do a research project and I was just learning R as I went. Um, and then in that case, I learned a bit more of MATLAB and Python. Um, but then when I shifted and applied for the PhD, I used um, online courses like EDX or Coursera. Um, they had some R courses. And so I, I learned R, like I started learning R uh, by, by using these online courses. But the truth is, is that a lot of these courses are aimed towards data analysis. So it is very much, oh, can you load this, this data? Can you kind of play around with it? Can you select certain bits and pieces? But for me, the biggest challenge and where I actually learned how to code was on the job during my PhD, um, because that approach to coding was very different than the experience I had in R. So, you know, I, I knew what R was, I could load data sets, I could play around a little bit with it, but the coding that I did was just learning as you go. Yeah, and I, I was the same. I, I'm not sure about you, Ellie, but I was the same. So obviously, I mean, Patrick, you know, when I started the undergraduate project, I didn't have like any coding experience. Um, and I agree with what you said about like learning on the job, because yeah. I think when you're doing your own research, you're not, you know, trying to make a card game in R anymore or following some steps that someone else has set out for you. You really have to like think for yourself. You have like your own novel problem or thing that you want to do and you have to code it yourself so I, I totally agree with you but one thing like I always say about trying to learn to code um when you're trying like you know when you're trying to get into bioinformatics is that it's really important to separate the two and know that learning to code comes before bioinformatics because I always think you can do um you can code without knowing any bioinformatics but you can't really do bioinformatics without knowing code um, so I agree. I, I use yeah. the online courses as well as you, um, and that's how I learn as well. But it's amazing, like how far you must have like came from starting your PhD to the end of your PhD to code. You know this whole package. It's it's actually amazing, like how how much you must have learned. It's it's definitely it's definitely a learning curve. Um, I feel like the the one thing that I notice that is kind of a bit odd, and I notice it quite here in this position as well is that every time you uh, change field or you're trying to learn a new skill um, that is quite very niche in a way and this is the same thing with programming is that and especially when you have a goal in mind like your own project you learn what you need to solve that problem but then there is a lot of other aspects that you don't necessarily know um, so you kind of find a path um, 
towards your end goal, but you might be skipping a lot of different parts. So I feel like at the end of my PhD, I realized that I became very good. I feel like I became very good at optimizing my code to make it as fast as possible and abuse the mechanics of R to make it very fast. But then there were tools that were super popular in the you know, R world that I had no idea how to use because it never became, it never was a thing that I needed to do. And most people would learn these tools, but I was like, I, I don't know what those are. It's such a, such a diverse tool really, isn't it? The, the world yeah. of R, you can use it for, for anything. So you become really, really good at your particular kind of in the grand scheme of research and in the science world, quite a tiny area. You become really, really expert in that area. Um, but then I guess there's always more, more to oh, learn. Yeah. <laughs> there definitely is. But I feel like this is something that is true for any programming language that you, yeah. that you would learn or anything that is very niche that you would learn. Yeah. There's always so many other things that you could, could decide to learn and go for. But in this case, yes, I will say that when you learn on the job, you will progress very quickly. Mm. Although sometimes it doesn't feel like you are. But if you look at what you learned in the past week, you're probably going to be like, wow, that's a lot. Um, so it's definitely, it's, it's a steep learning curve, but it's interesting and worth it. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, anyway, so should we get into, let's get into the genomics, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Patrick, obviously recently you have just published a paper. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so what was, what was the title of that paper? Uh, so the title is Dis dissecting the binding mechanisms transcription factor by of transcription factors to DNA using a statistical thermodynamic framework. Amazing. So should we start off? Uh, maybe you could just explain what what are transcription factors? What what do they do? What's the importance of them? Sure. Uh, so transcription factors are a set of proteins that have the specific ability of binding to DNA and are generally involved with the activation or repression of gene expression. Now, generally, you can see that there are two types of transcription factors, two main types of transcription factors. Uh, there's what you call the general transcription factors that are there at every time you have a gene activation. They're just kind of like your standard transcriptional machinery. Um, and then there's the, another type of transcription factor, which is the ones that we were more interested in that are specifically targeting um, certain sites or certain genes. Um, and so that is generally the, their goal is to bind to a specific location of the DNA that is in close proximity, uh, more or less close proximity to a gene. And then they will recruit a whole bunch of other proteins, a whole bunch of other transcription factors, and that will enable to open up the DNA and transcribe that DNA into RNA. And most transcription factors have the tendency of binding in a sequence specific manner. So they, time, they recognize um, a, a short sequence of DNA and they kind of try and find the sequence, if you will, along the DNA. Um, and in certain cases, they can also kind of repress gene expression by binding there uh, to a specific location and inhibiting the binding of other transcription factors or other proteins. And so it's, they are key players in gene regulation in general. Great. Okay. So um, what kind of, obviously you've, you were using your our package to look at the binding mechanisms of transcription factors to DNA. Um, why exactly did you think that you needed to go 
about developing this package like what what problems uh were you trying to overcome when you were developing your package so the when developing this package and using a biophysical model specifically the nice thing about using a biophysical model is that you have fixed parameters fixed variables and a relationship between these variables and this gives you an idea of what potentially could be driving the binding of specific proteins so it's not only a question of saying we can predict where a transcription factor is going to bind but we also want to understand why it binds where it does and so the goal of this package is to to just to be able to predict and to understand where transcription factors bind initially. So there's not necessarily, we're not looking at the activation or repression of genes in this case. We're just looking at where and what seemingly drives um, the binding of transcription factors. And the model that we used, it, it contains four different parameters. Uh, one of them is being the binding energy, which is how well your transcription factor will bind to DNA, how strongly it will bind. Then we have like the DNA accessibility is if your that sequence is open or closed, if it's accessible for your transcription factor. And then there's also the number of transcription factors that are bound to your sequence of DNA. And then finally, we had a scaling factor, which was essentially how well a certain transcription factor discriminates between high affinity sites and very high affinity sites. And so the idea is that because we have these four parameters and because we had this relationship between these four parameters, if we were able to predict transcription factor binding well using this model, then we can understand certain aspects of the behavior of specific transcription factors. So if you have a transcription factor that is very well explained by this relationship of these four parameters, you can then say that these are sufficient to explain the binding of this transcription factor. However, if it fails to predict, you can say, well, there's probably something else that is going on. These four parameters are not sufficient to be able to explain its binding. And so the idea of the package is to provide a predictive tool. So being able to say, okay, if we have an unknown, an unknown cell type, or we haven't had any experimental data, or we have it in a different cell type, can we predict where it is going to, where we could, assume or expect to have um, transcription factor binding events and then on top of that understanding what type of behavior what is the driving forces behind transcript that specific transcription factor and how it binds to dna so those were kind of like the the main goals um, and how this biophysical model can be useful um, compared to just looking at potentially some some raw data. You could look at some chip data or you could look at some accessibility data, but you wouldn't necessarily get the same relationship. You wouldn't necessarily get the same information output on the behavior of this transcription factor if you were to just use this these type of data sets. That's a really great explanation. So we can just sort of just look at everything as a bigger picture instead of looking at things individually. Um, one thing I quite like to establish, like when I'm talking to people about their research quite early on is like, what is the bigger picture of your research? Like, why is it so important that we can understand more about transcription factors, where they bind, why they bind there? Like, why is that so important to, I guess, genomics? Well, the thing is that transcription factors are, they are at the heart of nearly every single 
genomic process in a way. Every time you have a protein that is being translated, that's being created, um, there's a transcription factor that had to bind and generate the, or activate or repress these genes. And so if you can understand how certain transcription factors bind, you have a, an insight into how your cell works. And we have seen many times, and there's a, there's a, a wealth of information where you can see that disruption of gene expression, disruption of gene regulation is often associated to various diseases. But this disruption of this gene expression could be linked to the, the binding of the transcription factor in the first place. So there's, of course, there's many other possibilities. You could have, you know, some mRNAs that are being degraded too quickly. You could have some, you know, mismatches uh, between binding sites. But at first, at one small little section, being able to understand where your transcription factors bind is um, gaining some insights into the the kind of chain of events that could lead to, you know, potentially cancer, potentially Alzheimer's. Um, and that's very much the, when you say like the bigger picture, this is very much the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a small link in the chain. But if you can understand this small link in the chain, you can kind of understand the, the bigger picture and the, the different mechanisms. Uh, it could be useful as well for, for targeting if you wanted to repress certain genes um that you know repress certain genes that are involved in you know cell growth and then cancerous tissues or things like that if you could understand why it binds there and how it binds there you could potentially inhibit that binding um and then have kind of like a potential therapeutic approach um, obviously we're very far from that understanding of transcription factors but it is i would say a long-term goal of understanding precisely understanding gene expression and gene regulation and the study of transcription factors is studying one of those links. Sure. So, um, so yeah, you're, obviously you're talking about using these in terms of um, like a, a therapeutic ways, obviously a long way, a long way down the line, like you say, um, are there, is the, you know, are there any attempts at the moment that people are making that you're aware of to use transcription factors in therapeutic ways? Uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure. I yeah, don't know because sure. I haven't really looked into the therapeutic aspects yeah. of, of things. Um, I assume that it is um, in the realms of possibilities yeah. uh, based on what I know from transcription factors, but I couldn't say it's definitely something that is that is used. Uh, yeah. There could be some limitations in terms of therapeutics that I'm not aware of, mm -hmm. um, but at the moment I am not aware of if any person or any lab or yeah, there have been some attempts sure. to use that. Sure. So how exactly do transcription factors actually um, act to repress like gene expression, for example? So you can kind of see like the, uh, the simplified version, because there's a lot of different elements that, that come into play, but you have your, your transcription factor that is within your, your nucleus and it finds its target regions. Now, how does it specifically find its target regions within the nucleus? That is a very difficult question that I'm not entirely sure we can properly answer. But the idea is that your transcription factor will come and bind to its uh, target site. And once you have uh, this binding to this target site, it is, kind, is going to start recruiting a whole bunch of other proteins. And these other proteins are the general transcription factors. And that is going to move along the, your, your sequence until it reaches a specific sequence just before 
your gene just before your gene starts. And then it's going to bring your uh, ribosome, your polymerase onto your DNA sequence. It's going to recruit the other, um, the other proteins that is going to open up your, your DNA, and then you can start transcribing. And that's what I would say the, the activation of, um, of transcription. Uh, and for example, to give you an example of what could be like a repression is that, and I think is, this is more common in plants than it is in humans, is that in plants, something that you see quite a lot is that you have proteins that are bound to uh, the, the promoter region of a gene. And because it is bound there, the polymerase can't come and transcribe. So when you have the activation of a gene, what happens is that you remove that roadblock and then you can kind of transcribe. Uh, so in this case, the repression of a gene is more of a question of blocking the machinery, blocking all the different elements you need to, to transcribe your DNA into RNA. Um, and that's kind of kind of you could block transcription as opposed to the activation of transcription, where it would be the recruitment of this machinery. So it seems like a really sort of attractive um, area, I guess, of genomics to research. I'm intrigued, Are, have there been previous um, attempts to do sort of what you've done already? Um, if so, what what were the pros and cons of, you know, other similar models? Uh, so yeah, there's been quite a few, tra understanding transcription factor binding and predicting transcription factor binding has been, uh, it's been a long process. So there are some some older models and some of the, the oldest models of predicting how these proteins can bind and where they bind um, goes back to the 1980s, where you wow. have very simple statistical models where you would compare the binding motif and see where it would bind along the, uh, along the genome. And you would have like a, a, a score, what they call a position weight matrix score, uh, where it tells you how likely this protein or this transcription factor is to bind at this specific sequence. Right. So that's how we sort of measure, I guess, where transcription factors are likely to bind. Um, at least at the very beginning, that was the, the main idea. So the, 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 one of the most popular models or one of the po most popular ways of measuring binding in a way uh, is using the binding sequence that is associated to a transcription factor and comparing it to all the sequence you have in the genome. And this was developed in 1987, where you have what you call a position weight matrix. And it gives you, for each base pair, it gives you how, how likely this motif is going to show the binding or have a binding event. The problem with this is that there are a lot of, there are a lot of motifs that could fit the description or that could fit that, um, that could fit that high probability of having a, a binding event, which is not necessarily what you observe when you do experiments like ChIP-seq. There are way more binding sites than there are ChIP-seq events or actual binding events. And so a big part of the transcriptural factor binding world is figuring out what are the other factors that contribute to transcriptural factor binding and how we can model it and then how we can predict it. And in 2016, there was a competition that was organized by uh, Dream, Dream Challenges, and they often do some computational biology uh, competitions. And then that year they had a transcription factor binding prediction um, competition. 
And while there were some other tools and other methods that had been developed before, that year and that competition really pushed forward a lot of different tools and a lot of different approaches to transcriptural factor binding. And in many cases, this was prediction. So there was um, a high emphasis and a high usage of methods like machine learning, uh, deep learning to kind of predict uh, transcriptural factor binding using chromatin accessibility and DNA accessibility. And a lot of these tools uh, work quite well, so they are very good at predicting, uh, but there are certain limitations that are associated to machine learning and deep learning. Okay, could you, could you touch upon some of those limitations a little bit for us? Uh, yeah, so in, in many cases when you have like a deep learning algorithm or a machine learning algorithm in general, uh, these algorithms are very good at looking for your data, finding patterns, and learning and being able to predict certain certain things. The only yeah. problem is, is that we don't know what these algorithms are looking at. Right. So there's is kind of the like, whole black box theory. Yeah. So yeah. there's there's data going in, and then something happens, which is just mathematics, and then something comes out. But what exactly they are, they are looking at, we don't really know what is going on and so, so that's they sort of, of like they come to a conclusion but we have no idea how it came to that conclusion I guess yes which I guess is kind of what we want to know yes like we so, need to know how it came to that conclusion I guess so that I feel like in biology we're we're very much more interested in in understanding you know the the mechanisms behind it we want to understand why we don't just want to be able to predict predict yeah um but a lot of these methods and models were developed with other intentions in mind where the people who developed them didn't really care about understanding why they just wanted predictions yeah. um, they were mo a lot of these models were originally developed for finance where you wanted to see fluctuations in the stock market where there you don't really care why it fluctuates you just want to be able to predict yeah. when you have to invest and so there was yeah. a kind of like the that approach when it was applied to biology it worked really well for prediction but we don't always understand what exactly the algorithm is picking up on yeah sure that makes a lot of sense so what is the model uh behind behind your package described in your paper convince us that it's better yeah <laughs> what's so <laughs> great about so great. it <laughs> So the the model is um, is derived from a field called statistical thermodynamics, and the, essentially statistical thermodynamics is the study of how you can organize particles, all the different combinations of how you can organize particles. So if you imagine like a really very simple example, if you had two boxes in a ball, there are three different ways you can organize these objects together. Either you keep the ball and you have your two empty boxes, or you put the ball in the first box, or you put the ball in the second box. All of those combinations and the, 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 um, the study of all of these combinations is kind of what statistical thermodynamic does because it studies the distribution and the conformation of different particles in a system. And so in our case, the system that we are looking at is transcription factors being your particles and your DNA, you can imagine them as this long sequence of boxes. Now, each of these boxes, they don't necessarily have the same probability of being of having a ball inside of them. Some of them may be very small and you can't fit the ball in there, or some of them are really large, so you could just toss it at random and it probably would fall into that box. And so you can kind of imagine that that's kind of like the approach that we took um, to, to describe transcriptural factor binding. Um, 
And so what we say is that what, how, what, what describes the probability of a specific box or a specific sequence or specific position along the DNA to be bound by a transcription factor. And essentially we're saying that there are four main points, which would be the binding energy. So that is the equivalent in what we're using the position weight matrix that I uh, mentioned earlier, which is kind of like a measure of how well um, or how strong the binding between your transcription factor and your DNA will be. And Can I ask the... a quick question about position sure. weight matrices? So how do we sort of get to like how do we get a pwm so most of the time you have to have you have experiments where you would have like um your transcription factor and you could imagine that you're just throwing in a whole bunch of dna sequences mm -hmm. and every time you have that short binding you can measure you can get that specific sequence that is associated to that transcription factor and so when you do this a lot, a lot and a lot of times, you get certain base pairs that um, the, for like your first, the first base pair of your binding motif, you're going to have certain base pairs that occur at a higher rate than others. Okay. And so once you do this for your, say, say you have like a 10 base pair motif mm -hmm. and you look at thousands and thousands of different motifs that were bound to this transcription factor, you start to get a probability of your first motif being an A, your second uh, letter being a G, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of do this for, um, for your 10 base pair binding motif. And then you use a little bit of mathematical transformation to, uh, to account for some, some variability within the genome, to account for the frequency of your different base pairs in your genome. And from there, you can kind of have this, uh, this matrix that gives you kind of like a probability of how likely that your first base pair will be an A compared to your G compared to a C compared to a T. Mm -hmm. that's right. So anyone who's seen, like if, I didn't know, um, perhaps Ellie, if you've seen one or anyone listening, but um, if you see what a PWM looks like, that's when it's got, you know, like the stacked letters and you'll have like a big yeah. A and a small C. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case anyone is listening, you could just Google uh, to see what a PWM looks like. And that will probably make a little bit more sense. But I think it'll make a, a lot. Explanation of you, that. Yeah, you did. You explained really well. Obviously, it's kind of, well, it's not obvious. I always say obviously. It's not obvious, but it's not really my field. Liv knows a little quite a lot more about it's it. It's one me. of those things that um, when you see it, you'll be like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I would, yeah, give it a good <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that's a really good explanation. Thank you. Sorry. Um, so yeah, so we have the, the PWM uh, as the binding energy. That's one input of your model. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, that's it. Um, and then we have a look at some, there's four other, four parameters in general, the PWM being one of them. Uh, then we look at the accessibility of that specific site. So we're making the assumption that, <clears throat> sorry, um, a, a transcription factor cannot bind to a site that is not accessible. So you kind of have to imagine that your DNA is being tightly bundled up and wound up inside your nucleus because it's a fairly long strand of information, but you're com com compacting it in a tiny, tiny little sphere. Um, and so there are certain moments where the, the compaction of that DNA is so tight that you wouldn't have a transcription factor can't wiggle its way through to bind to that specific location. So we're looking at accessibility under the assumption that if your DNA is inaccessible, we won't have any binding at all. 
And then on the opposite side, if your DNA is accessible and that site is you know, available, it is more likely that you will have um, you will have a binding. So if you if I come back to the analogy with the boxes, I was going to say the ball and box analogy is this where your ball doesn't fit in your box. It doesn't fit in the box or the box is just closed. You just yeah. kind of close it off and you can't actually get there. Um, so that's the a, a very important factor in, in how we, we describe transcription factor sure. binding. And then the other aspect is um, the number of bound molecules and a scaling factor. And so the number of bound molecules is along this huge system of your where you have your, your stretch of DNA and your number of transcription factors, how many of them are actually bound to the DNA? And so this is under the assumption that in certain locations, the more you have them bound to the DNA, the higher your peak will be. Um, and that's something that we kind of observed where we noticed that with a higher, with certain, in certain cases, certain seek peaks seem to be higher than others. Um, and we are estimating that this is due to um, a quantitative effect where you might have more transcription factors that are bound there because they are you know, highly important binding sites. And then finally, the, the, uh, the last factor is uh, what we call lambda, which is a scaling factor um, of the position weight matrix. And this is how well you can this uh, transcription factor can discriminate between high affinity sites and low affinity sites. So you have certain transcription factors that are going to be very specific or very picky about their binding sites, where they're not going to give you a lot of wiggle room. If it's not precisely this binding site, not going to bind, or it's very unlikely. But some other transcription factors are going to be like, ah, there's a few mismatches, it's fine. And it's still going to bind at that location. Okay. And so this, all this together is the model that we used. Um, and the advantage of using this model compared to, for example, the machine learning uh, models is that even though we, if we were to fail to predict mm -hmm. um, the binding of a transcription factor, we can still understand certain mechanisms or certain behaviors that are associated to it. So instead of, we know exactly what the model is picking up on. We know exactly what is going in and what is coming out and what transformation is happening in between. So because of that, it makes, we have predictions, but we also have a, a certain amount of explainability that is associated, yeah. associated to it. Sure. Um do you give like equal weighting of importance to all four of those parameters? Is there is there one that's more important than the others? Um... So, as the way the out the equation mm -hmm. is uh, developed and put, there is not necessarily weights that are associated okay. to them specifically. Yeah. That being said. Um, in my experience, having looked at it, mm -hmm. for me, the most the, the biggest driving force is DNA accessibility when we're right. when okay. we're looking at it, because it's the one that is going to have the most drastic effect on the probability of binding. Yeah. Because the the, pre, the preliminary results and the preliminary analysis that uh, Radu had done um, previously, he demonstrated that you you could just consider the accessibility as either closed or open. And so that means that your probability, if your DNA is closed, the probability drops to zero directly. Okay. Uh, yeah. But in the other cases, you have a bit more wiggle room where it will increase more or less the probability of being um, being present or be having a binding effect. So I would say that in practice, yes, the DNA accessibility probably has a bit more weight than, than the other factors. Because it's more of an absolute effect, I guess. Yes. If it's, if it's not accessible, then it's just not not going to bind at all. 
Yes. So what we also did is that we also had a look at, um, instead of having a look at this zero or one type, mm -hmm. um, we tried to have a look at more continuous value. So it was okay. like a, mm -hmm. a value between zero and one, depending on how compacted the DNA was. Um, and this didn't really give us better results by any means. Right. Um, it was cleaner and sharper when you consider zero one okay. um, instead of continuous values. So where would, I know that like, you know, if there's some transcription factor enthusiasts listening, they may be thinking about um, pioneer transcription factors and where they might fall in here. We know that pioneer transcription factors like to bind in closed chromatin. So how, how can you sort of account for that or? Yeah, so the pioneer transcription factors there, there's actually two aspects to consider when you're looking or considering a pioneer transcription factor. The first thing is, is that it's true that pioneer transcription factors do bind to inaccessible DNA. So they have ways of um, finding DNA motifs or even looking at histone modifications or nucleosomes and they can kind of wiggle their way through and then help to open up the, the chromatin. However, um, in the case of a, trans a pioneer transcription factor, it is not sufficient for it to actually bind in inaccessible um, chromatin. There's also the other condition that it participates directly in a, um, a pathway. So it is part of necessary for a certain gene regulatory pathway. So there are certain cases where you have proteins uh, or DNA binding proteins that bind to inaccessible DNA, but are not necessarily part of a pathway specifically. Um, so in the case of like pioneer transcription factors, what we would expect when we see um, a pioneer transcription factor with this model is that we would expect it to be to perform quite poorly because it, its binding sites would be technically masked by the fact that you have closed chromatin. That being said, if you do see that you have a protein that binds a lot in inaccessible DNA, it does not necessarily mean that this is going to be a pioneer transcription factor because it could, it's not necessarily going to be involved in a um, transcriptional pathway. Um, and this is something that we observed, for example, when we were looking at one of our proteins, which is called suppressor of hairy wing. And this is a, an architectural protein that binds a lot in inaccessible DNA, but is not directly responsible of a transcriptional pathway. So it wouldn't count as necessarily as a um, pioneer transcription factor. Okay, that's really interesting. So, uh, so probably should have asked this before you just gave us that really good explanation. But for the non uh, transcription factor enthusiasts out there, can you just quickly <laughs> summarize what a pioneer transcription factor is? Just very briefly, please. Uh, yeah, so a pioneer transcription factor is uh, a transcription factor that tends to bind in inaccessible DNA and kind of opens up a pathway or opens up the DNA um, and is involved in a transcriptional profile. And in certain cases, you can imagine that you have this closed bunch of, of chromatin where everything is very compact. And then you have this pioneer transcription factor that comes to bind to one of its binding sites that it recognizes and it starts to relax and open up the chromatin and then you have more proteins that arrive and it kind of opens it up and makes it accessible for other transcription factors that will come into play and help with the transcription and the gene regulatory pathway. Great thank you. So in your paper you looked at um, architectural proteins in Drosophila is that mm -hmm. correct? Yes that is it. 
So you just mentioned some of them. Um, before we sort of, I guess, talk a little bit more about that aspect of the research. Um, so we're just throwing, this is like a, <laughs> a biology quiz, isn't it? Um, what, exactly are, <laughs> what exactly are architectural proteins? So um, architectural proteins are, are proteins that are involved in the stabilization or maintenance of your, your structured DNA within the nucleus. So you can imagine that when you compact your, your DNA within your nucleus, you have, to have, you have to have some way of organizing it. It can't just be a knotted mess. Um, and so these proteins are proteins that help to stabilize certain regions that are going to be bundled together and then or maybe anchoring um, your DNA to the outside layer of your nucleus envelope. And so the, the global purpose of architectural proteins is stabilizing your chromatin, your DNA. And this has, you know, just the standard organization helps with organization but this organization also further down the line can help in uh, gene expression regulating gene expression um, so that's basically what a, a architectural protein does is genome stabilization yeah that makes sense so you did this in uh drosophila like i just said um i guess like how generalizable is like are the results um that you see in, Dr in drosophila how generalizable are they to, um, I guess, the human genome or the mouse genome? So one thing that is kind of interesting with Drosophila is that the we looked at three architectural proteins in this case, CTCF B32 and suppressive heroin. Now, the thing is, is that there's a lot more known architectural proteins in Drosophila than there are in human or mouse. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't exist in humans or mice. It just means that we haven't necessarily found an equivalence, or there's not necessarily an equivalence between um, between the species. Um, so in this case, I feel like the CTCF seems to have, I would say, slightly different roles um, between mice and humans, and um, Drosophila, where you you still have this anchoring of what is called topologically associated domains, which is just like bundled up DNA. Um, and so I would say, generally speaking, there are certain things that translate well between, um, between species, but not everything. Um, in CTCF, we also had a look at how it works in humans, and the model still kind of predicts things quite well. Uh, but I do think that there are some subtleties between species that are, don't necessarily translate as well. Um, I think like, for example, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the case of Drosophila, you have a lot of uh, collaborations in a way between different architectural proteins, which in humans doesn't seem to be as much the case. Uh, so the role of CTCF in humans or mice could be more important than it is in, in Drosophila, because in Drosophila, you have kind of other, um, other proteins as well, or other DNA um, architectural proteins. It doesn't mean that CTCF is not important, but there could be a bit more of a buffering um, activity or in Drosophila that you don't necessarily see in other organisms. So would you say that obviously there's a, there's a lot more in the Drosophila. Were you uh, aiming to use Drosophila as kind of a, a model for um, other systems like humans, or were you using it as um, it was an ideal uh, model to actually study what you were looking at because it had so many of these architectural proteins was yeah. it just or to sort of like yeah I guess test the model and 
test your yeah. your package out so the yeah, that's that's exactly it. i feel like the the truth is that drosophila is there's a lot of work that has been done in drosophila so there's a lot yeah. of a wealth of information that we have access to and a big part of the work that i did from my, my phd in this paper that the key concept of the paper i would say is that we are trying to validate the model mm-hmm. um, so a lot of the findings that we we describe in the paper are things that have been demonstrated experimentally we're just showing that the model can recover these experimental findings okay. and so with with regard to that i think that the drosophila is just easier it's smaller it's a lot faster okay. you can run a lot more tests a lot quicker because you don't have to worry about you know going through 3 billion base pairs so there's there's a there's a I this is one thing I learned you. about Patrick because he just totally has a grudge against like human research. <laughs> Anything to do with humans, you just don't like it. I've I've gotten better at that. Technically, well, no, it's not true. I'm working with mice data, um, <laughs> but um, no, I do prefer I do prefer in other rehab for human research. <laughs> yeah, humans are definitely at the bottom of the barrel in terms of research that I would want to work on. Now, if, yeah. if, if I can just develop algorithms and do coding, it doesn't really matter the data I'm working with, <laughs> um, but I'm less interested in human data for some reason. I'm curious, what's at the top? What's at the top of the list? Plants. Plants, <laughs> like, okay. plants in general. Interesting. Um, I think that plants, a lot of people tend to um, disregard them and saying, oh, they're boring, they don't move. I going to say, I think, the vast majority of people are completely the other way around, aren't they? Much prefer humans over plants. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I, I hate plants. Sorry, hate I'm them. So sorry to anyone. Like to who look at plants. them. Don't like you to look at them. You know what it was? It was them. literally just from secondary school learning about plants. I just found them so boring. And ever since, just the mention of plant research, it just makes me shudder a bit. Mm. I don't know why. I just I have a great sorry to all the plant plants. people. Yeah, I I also do. I don't know. <laughs> just was never that inspired by them really <laughs> i think the problem with plants and something that is that some of the mechanisms in plants are incredibly well optimized and the other thing is is that for, especially for people who study genomics plants are i find more interesting systems because the genomics behind them are a lot more complex because okay. a plant can't just run away it has to deal with the cold it has to deal with drought it has to deal with logging so there's all of these mechanisms of stress that are included in in the plant genome and then there's also the added complexity where you have um though for example the the genome of wheat uh, has been sequenced it's only very recently that we've sequenced the genome of wheat because there's three different complete genomes in there so it's not just one you know with the the few chromosomes that human have. No, no, we have six different sets of chromosomes or three different sets of chromosomes. Um, and so there's a, an added complexity in the mechanisms that are um, that you can see in plants. And on the plus side as well is that it's not completely illegal to do genetic mutation studies <laughs> on plants. <laughs> yeah. So in conclusion, humans are cowards and we're boring. <laughs> That's not what I said. <laughs> Closing words from Patrick. <laughs> no, but you can do some mutation work, and you—it's—it's—it's it's, it's like yeast. Yeah. Yeast is an interesting, um, an interesting model because you can really dive into, like, the whole systems biology. It's more of a question of fundamental understanding of how a cell works over trying to find a cure and understanding for yeah. human purposes specifically. So it's a yeah. different approach 
to science, um, I would you can say. can really mess them around without having to worry about all the ethical um, paperwork that comes with it. There's definitely less, there's definitely less paperwork. You still have to be careful of like GMOs because especially in Europe, um, GMOs getting out of the lab is a, a no-go. Um, but then but yeah, again, no, you're definitely right. I mean, on the last episode, um, we were chatting to Jess Chadwick. She's a PhD student in Imperial College London and she studies spinal cord injury. Mm. And um, I mean, you and Jess Ellie were discussing, you know, about all the ethics behind you know, Human. using mice as a model to study spinal cord injury, you know, you can't just give someone a spinal cord injury. No, with it's a lot, of, you know, trying to research it. So yeah, you are definitely right. Yeah, for sure. I still hate plants. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I will still go back to Not eventually, hopefully to go back to plants. And also, you know, I would argue that world hunger is a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah you're you're not wrong there correct yeah no you are you you make a very good point <laughs> and um, it takes all sorts doesn't it we need we need the people that are interested in plants definitely that's true i mean I'm, i i do like plants but ultimately and i think this is this is true for a lot of bioinformaticians because i know a few bioinformaticians who are like this as well is that in your everyday life you have to remember that what you're going to be doing is playing with data is playing with code mathematics, yeah. statistics. So ultimately the, in, the the biology, and I can't believe I'm going to say, the biology and the organism don't necessarily matter as much for your everyday work, um, yeah. what you're going to be doing every day or what you could enjoy. I mean, in my case, it's a lot of the, you know, the mathematics that is behind it that I find interesting. So here I'm working with my data for my postdoc. Um, it could be human data, but a few projects where I worked with uh, actually clinical and patient data, um but oh I bet they didn't last long uh what well, the work <laughs> <But> you quit <laughs> them <laughs> it was only for, humans I was only, no <laughs> I was only brought in um as a, a quick because they needed a quick coder to finish up some 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 tests um but it, it was technically clinical clinical data um but I was just just there to do some some comparisons between methods and whatnot but I guess that's that's one big advantage of um being the actual the, the bioinformatician rather than uh, the, the wet lab biologist that has to do a tiny bit of bioinformatics for their specific area of research. You're, um, as a bioinformatician, you can apply your knowledge, your skills to all calibers of research. So you're not limiting yourself to just plants, just humans. It, it can be anything that you, anything that people require really, I guess your code can be applied. It can, but I will say, and for a lot of, people who work in the wet lab is that knowledge or domain specific knowledge is extremely important to make, to make a good, I think a good bioinformatician also needs to know domain specific knowledge. And mm -hmm. I've especially noticed this in the work research that I'm doing at the moment, where if you don't have domain specific knowledge, mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult to actually make sense of your data. Um, and so it, essentially you end up just having numbers that are completely meaningless if yeah. you can't put it back into the context of, of biology. Mm. And this is like a, a big, yeah. big issue that you have in single cell data, where if you don't have that domain specific knowledge, um, you're not necessarily going to be able to make any sense of your data. Sure. So both in both cases, it's definitely, it's a different skill set. It's true that you can apply your skills to different types of data, but making sense of the data, um, definitely need the help of um, yeah. people who have you know very good domain specific knowledge 
Great. So, I mean, have you got any other questions, Liv, or are we going to... Yeah. You do? do. do. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to uh, Drosophila. So what um, what did you actually, I guess, discover about the binding of um, those architectural proteins to the Drosophila genome? So the main finding that uh, we discovered is that all of these these free architectural proteins, all three of them have a different behavior when it comes to their binding. Um, we noticed that in the case of CTCF, um, we saw that there was a strong binding at high affinity binding sites, but then it seemed to kind of taper off. And so at lower affinity binding sites, the model didn't predict very well what was going on. So, so when you say, sorry, so when you say high affinity and lower affinity, what, what exactly do you mean by that? So in the, the way we classified high affinity to low affinity in this case is we looked at um, how strong your ChIP-seq peak was. So it was the assumption that if you have a very strong and high ChIP-seq peak, that would mean that you had a lot of reads that were associated to that region. And it is likely for it to be a very high affinity binding site because it's a strong binding event that, okay. um, that occurs yeah. there. And so once you order them from the highest to the lowest, and you kind of look at how the model performs depending on the number of regions that you're um, selecting, you can't, we saw that in CTCF, you kind of had a drop from the very strongest peaks. And the more you went down to the least strongest peaks or the weakest peaks, you kind of saw a breakdown of how well the model performs. And that kind of suggested that this model of looking at the binding affinity, the accessibility, the number of bound molecules, works fairly well when you have strong binding, but when you have weaker binding sites, there's probably something else that is driving CTCF. Um, and this is not something that we can- What's, Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, maybe you're about to say that you wasn't sure what it could potentially be, but I obviously mentioned, um, you know, pioneer transcription factors. I know, again, there'll be some people thinking about cooperative binding. Mm. Um, so yeah. what do you think about, about how, perhaps the model might, um, I guess, consider that? Um, so in this case, the model does not consider uh, cooperative binding, but you're absolutely okay. right in saying that cooperative binding is a very important aspect of transcription factor binding. Yeah, and I could think that this potentially would... be involved in maybe the, the findings in, that you, you saw with CTCF? Um, it's, I would say in CTCF, it's very difficult to, to say if there's definitely cooperative binding. I'm not okay. aware of that there is necessarily some studies. I know that at lower affinity, there are certain um, studies that demonstrate that there's a, a competition between uh, CTCF and cohesin at lower affinity binding sites. So in certain cases, you could have these binding sites that CTCF is always going to win. But when you go to lower affinity binding sites, there might be like a competition or a cooperativity with other with other uh, transcription factors. Here in this case with architectural proteins, the the question of cooperativity is a bit more complicated. But we also studied um, a series of free HOCS transcription factors, and HOCS transcription factors are very much involved in development, and they are also demonstrated to have cooperative binding. Yeah. Um, and this is one of the cases where despite the fact that we are able to recover their behavior with respect to DNA accessibility, we saw that the model didn't perform that well in re recovering the actual profiles, uh, the actual binding profiles. And we believe that this is probably due to 
the lack of corporativity in the model. So the model here does yeah. not consider how much of an influence DNA corporate or protein-protein cooperativity, protein-protein interactions, or um, competition between transcription factors and um, things like assisted loading where the binding of one transcription factor will open up slightly the DNA so another transcription factor can bind. All of these factors yeah. are not considered in the current model. Sure. Is that something um, that could be incorporated potentially in the future? Um, I think it could be. Um, I suppose there will be some works that will be done on looking into cooperativity. I mean, cooperativity in general for understanding transcription factor binding um, is a very important aspect. Yeah. It's just, it's a difficult thing to, yeah. to include, main, especially if you want to be um, systematic. Yeah. So you could include some transcription factors because you know there's some experimental data that demonstrates there's cooperativity between these two these two um, proteins and these two transcription factors but truly demonstrating cooperativity without doing all the experiments one by one yeah um, sure. is is a difficult is a difficult task yeah yeah so a whole new a whole new project for probably a number of different people yeah i think so yeah, i think not that just an easy extension <laughs> no definitely not um i think that there's a lot of a lot of different things that need to be considered to do it yeah properly of course yeah sure yeah but actually sure. that's like you know that's sort of highlights like I guess how important your research is because mm. it's sort of like one of the first steps I guess to getting to that point and helping that to happen I guess yeah definitely um, my last sort of question I guess from me anyway would just be um how did you like how did the model perform um compared to other similar methods when you sort of um evaluated it um, so when we evaluated, we, we actually tested it and compared the model to um, a few different methods, and this was in, in human data, and the techniques, it, I would say generally the model outperformed the other, um, the other models or the other methods. Now that being said, there are certain caveats to keep in mind is that a lot of the other methods are very good at predicting transcription factor binding events and saying there's going to be a binding here or there's going to be a binding there uh, but they don't necessarily account for the height of your peak and that is something that we account for in our model and that we use to score and to assess how well the model performs mm -hmm. so yes our model does outperform the other methods but that also could be due to uh, the scoring method that we use and the approach that we used. Now, that being said, the thing is, is that in, in our case, we're very much interested in, we were interested in the height of the peak. We were interested in not only the location, because that was part of what we were aiming to do is have an explanation of the binding. And in the other cases, the other models, um, they are more interested in predicting binding. And so all three of these models, they used, uh, they used position weight matrices in certain cases, and they also used uh, DNA accessibility data, but the method of how they incorporate this was very different. And in general, Chip Analyzer did perform a lot better, or at least as well at predicting the locations of transcription factor binding, but where it did outperform the other models is how well it recovers chip data, actual okay. chip data. Um, but then again, it, it is to keep in mind, and I think this is an important, an important aspect is that depending on what you are 
looking to do. Chip Analyzer might not necessarily be the best tool for the job. Like some other of these packages are very good at predicting transcription factor binding, but you don't necessarily get anything more. Um, and so the scoring method and the way we assess the performance of packages and the way we assess how well other packages uh, work is an important factor to consider as well. It's very much, I guess, performance is very much dependent on the nature of the task that you're wanting to assess. Yeah, I mean, ide ideally, you would want to be good at both. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the tools that we had a look at, and we're not aware of, there are certain tools that were developed with a similar idea in mind of looking also at peak height. Mm -hmm. um, but these tools are um, either not necessarily directly published or um, not necessarily applicable to what we were trying to do. Um, so when we assessed the, the model and how well it performed, we had to consider that we were going to have to, to create a scoring method specifically designed for the problem at hand. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit more challenging with that respect, but otherwise it works, it works fairly well. And it's really sure. um, like, I know I've used it and it is, it's a great package to use. Um, it's really easy to use. I mean, if I used it with no coding experience <laughs> whatsoever, I can, um, I can definitely say that it's a great package. Um, sorry, I know I said last question, but I'm just wondering, could you sum up in like one sentence what you could use Chip Analyzer for? Like what could people use it for? Um, so you could use the package to predict transcriptional factor binding events between cell lines. If you have some data in one cell line and you have partial data in another cell line, you could mm -hmm. use that for predictions. Or if you want to have a screening process of understanding what type of transcription factor and what type of behavior is associated to that transcription factor, you could also use Chip Analyzer for this type of applications. Nice. Well, my my question, if Liv hasn't got any more last last I'll questions, I'll be quiet. <laughs> uh, is basically just would you like to make any <laughs> shameless self promotions? Where can we get your paper? Where can we access the chip analyzer tool? And have you got a Twitter? Any other social media? We can leave all of that in the episode description box. Um, so if you just want to tell people where they can find out more, basically. <laughs> Um, so the package is available on uh, Bioconductor. Yeah. Um, so for you can just put Chip Analyzer Bioconductor, and you will be able to download it from there. Um, the paper is available on the General Computational and Structural Biology, uh, which you might also find some bioarchives, but the paper is the latest updated version of it. And I do have Twitter as well, which I mainly use for academic purposes. Um, which is at PCN Martin. Um, so people can can find me there. And so that's kind of basically it for that side of the uh, that side of the project and that side of the coding. Sure. No, that's so. great. We'll we'll make sure that we pop it all like in the episode description so people can easily go and read the paper and everything. Um, so what what your next like what's your next steps in your career? Obviously, you're doing your postdoc at the moment. Are you going to continue, or do you hope to maybe come back to transcription factor binding one day, or or not? Um, I won't be coming back to transcription factor binding. <laughs> okay, <Mainly laughs> that's very definite. <laughs> it's it's mainly because oh, well, I say not coming back to transcription factor binding, not necessarily, but not in the same approach as I did for my PhD. So. 
I very much like more of a systems approach where you look at everything interacting with everything and try and find patterns within the everything interacting with everything. And so it's one of the reasons why I'm particularly, I, I really enjoy the work that I'm doing here because it's a mix between single cell RNA sequencing with that added, um, with that added component of location. Um, but I think that in general, I would like to, I would like to continue with this more um, holistic approach and systems biology approach, uh, at least for this postdoc. And then the future is probably going to be outside of academia for me. I would say that there is a 99% chance that this will be um, this will be it in terms of uh, mm -hmm. in terms of academic research. I still okay. would like to do research, but not in academia. At least you're still staying in research, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just it's there's a there's restrictions i would say there's a lot of freedom that you have in academia um but there's also a lot of aspects of academia that i'm not too too keen on yeah and i'm not saying that um it is different in the industrial world the industry world but um i'm quite keen to find out and i there's a lot of applications and a lot of research interests that i think would would probably be better suited for industry type jobs than for um than for like academic research so sure. i would like to I, i'm definitely going to finish this postdoc potentially continue it because i would like to you know finish the project that i'm working on and pushing forward and see how mm -hmm. far you can go with this yeah. uh, but in the long run it's definitely leaving academia for me. <laughs> very good <laughs> Okay, well, um, we should probably wrap it up. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much you. for talking to us. Um, Thank you for it's been me. really interesting. Really interesting um, work. Thank you. Yeah, like we said, we'll pop like all of the, the links to the paper, uh, Patrick's Twitter, everything in the episode description. So if anyone wants to ask him questions, I'm sure he'll be happy to answer them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, yeah, thanks for talking to us. And we will see everyone in episode three. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Genomics Lab. That's got a capital G and a capital L. You can actually also find both of us on Instagram at a genomics PhD and at PhD underscore Ellie. Finally, be sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform and we will see you all in the next episode. Thank you again for listening.